Hello, and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode from our centenary series exploring 100 ideas in genetics, we're unravelling the story of the double helix, cracking the triplet code, and sketching out a Punnett square. There's a story I once heard, and it goes something like this. Someone's giving a lecture and asks the audience, what did Watson and Crick discover? A voice pipes up from the back. Rosalind Franklin's notes! (laughs) 1953 The paper is less than a thousand words long and begins with the immortal lines We wish to suggest a structure for the salt of deoxyribose nucleic acid, DNA. This structure has novel features which are of considerable biological interest. It was, of course, the first description of the double helical structure of DNA by American James Watson and Britain Francis Crick one of the best-known double acts in scientific history, who were based at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge at the time. The discovery earned the pair the 1962 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, together with Maurice Wilkins from King's College London. Watson and Crick did deserve their Nobel for the intellectual work in figuring out that DNA must be a twisted, two-stranded ladder, rather than the other models that were being bandied around at the time, such as Linus Powling's peculiar triple-stranded helix. But while they spent plenty of time playing around with cardboard models, not to mention chatting over beers in the Eagle pub, they never did any experimental work to prove that their structure was correct. All of that came from Wilkins' lab at King's, particularly one famous image, Photo 51, taken by Rosalind Franklin and her PhD student Ray Gosling, which provided the crucial evidence suggesting that DNA was indeed a double helix. After World War II, a new spirit of scientific discovery was in the air. Freed from their war efforts, chemists, physicists and biologists were all working together in the relatively new discipline of molecular biology, combining forces to develop the tools and techniques that would finally allow them to uncover the inner workings of life itself. One of these was X-ray crystallography, effectively a method for taking images of the patterns created by X-rays as they scatter through the structures of crystallised biological molecules, like proteins and DNA. And John Randall's Medical Research Council-funded biophysics unit at King's College London was the place to be doing it. Despite struggling with limited lab space, the physics building at King's having mostly been destroyed in the war, Randall built up an impressive team. Wilkins recalls hilarious, if slightly bawdy, Christmas parties. Others in the university describe the unit as Randall's Circus, with Ray Gosling recalling, Now that's what attracted me in the first place. I heard about this strange, bald-headed little man with a Napoleon complex who was running the circus in biophysics, and it sounded wonderful to me. By 1950, Randall's deputy, Maurice Wilkins, was working together with Gosling to try and take X-ray pictures of DNA extracted from cuttlefish sperm that Wilkins had collected on a trip to Naples and turned into solid crystals. 
These were the clearest pictures of DNA to date, revealing a strikingly regular pattern of scattered X-rays. This led their King's colleague Alex Stokes, whose contribution to the story of DNA is also often overlooked, to suggest that the molecule might be a helix of some kind. Randall was ahead of his time, not only in his vision of bringing biology and physics together, but also in his championing of women in science. He brought in the renowned zoologist Honor Fell as the unit's senior biological advisor and recruited a number of women, including muscle researcher Jean Hansen, who eventually took over as director of the unit when Randall moved to Edinburgh, and an up-and-coming young physicist named Rosalind Franklin. But here's where the problem started. Randall wrote to Franklin prior to her arrival in 1951, telling her that she would be in charge of the DNA studies at King's and taking over supervising Gosling. But when she turned up, she found that Wilkins was still working on the DNA problem. Combined with the mismatch between their personal styles, Franklin being far more direct and uncompromising than the retiring Wilkins, this created tension and obstructed progress, as Wilkins politely describes it in his biography of Randall. Regardless of the interpersonal conflict, Franklin and Gosling got their heads down and set to work. Franklin realised that DNA turned up in two different forms, A and B, which seemed to be interchangeable depending on how wet their samples were. Dry A-type fibres were short and fat, giving inconclusive X-ray patterns, while the long stringy fibres in the wetter B form were much more amenable. By carefully tweaking the water levels in samples of DNA extracted from calf thymus, Franklin and Gosling were able to achieve even clearer X-ray photos than before. The best of which was Photo 51, revealing a regular repeating scattering pattern that strongly indicated a helix structure for the B-form. Presenting her data at a lecture in November 1951, Franklin noted, The results suggest a helical structure which must be very closely packed, containing two, three or four coaxial nucleic acid chains per helical unit. Over the next year or so, Franklin and Gosling continued their work, gathering ever more detailed information about the likely structure of DNA. And by January 1953, she was drafting papers explaining that DNA was likely to be a double helix. Yet she was cautious about publishing her findings until she was sure she was right – probably because of the risks of failure as a woman in science at the time. Then, on the 30th of January 1953, Franklin received an unexpected visitor. It was James Watson, who had come down to London from Cambridge to see Wilkins, bringing with him an unpublished copy of a new paper from Linus Powling at Stanford University, incorrectly outlining a three-stranded structure for DNA. Wilkins wasn't in his office, so Watson headed over to Franklin's lab instead. He urged her to collaborate with him and Francis Crick, but ended up annoying her by implying that she couldn't interpret her data. Ironically, Watson had been at a lecture by Franklin where she talked about the possible structure, but he didn't take notes and he misremembered what she'd said. Given Watson's patronising attitude to Franklin in his book, The Double Helix, such as referring to her as Rosie and suggesting that the best home for a feminist was in another person's lab, we can only imagine how that went down. And so it's not surprising that when Wilkins finally did turn up, 
he chose to show Watson Franklin's data and photos without asking her and risking further anger. It was photo 51 in particular that set Watson's pulse racing. Franklin's photo and measurements told him that he and Crick were along the right lines with their double helix model, and he rushed back to Cambridge to complete their work and prepare their manuscript for publication. For his part, Francis Crick had also seen Franklin and Gosling's data from a non-confidential MRC report passed to him by his Cambridge buddy Max Perutz. The result was the same. On the 25th of April, 1953, a trio of papers turned up in the journal Nature. Watson and Crick's, along with one from Wilkins together with Alex Stokes and Herbert Wilson, and the third from Franklin and Gosling, complete with their beautiful Photo 51. Without seeing Franklin and Gosling's data, it's arguable that Watson and Crick might have taken a bit longer to figure out the structure, or even been beaten to the punch by someone else. But however they came upon Photo 51 and Franklin's careful measurements, there is a strong case to be made that they, and Wilkins himself, didn't acknowledge how important it had been to their model. Finally, it's worth remembering that Watson and Crick's famous double helix was still just a bright idea. And although geneticists loved the way the structure explained how DNA could be read and copied, many biochemists were still sceptical. It took seven more years of experiments by Wilkins and the team at King's to prove that the twisted ladder was true, helping him to earn his place in the Nobel lineup. Franklin, however, had had enough. By March 1953, just before the three nature papers came out, she had left King's for a position at Birkbeck University, where she made key discoveries about the structure of viruses. Sadly, she died of ovarian cancer just five years later at the age of 37, possibly hastened by exposure to the X-rays that formed such an important part of her work. Her death came virtually five years to the day after that slew of papers. And although it's tempting to speculate that she should have been in the lineup for a Nobel Prize, her premature death took her out of the running forever. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And it would be really great if you could rate and review the show. And please tell all your friends. Send out a tweet, accost someone in the hallway. It all helps people to discover this podcast too. We all know about the two strands of the double helix and that there are four letters in DNA. But as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to biology, three is the magic number. That's because the code that translates the DNA recipes encoded in genes into the thousands of different proteins that build every living thing on Earth is based on groups of three letters. No more, no less. So how does it work? And who figured it out in the first place? The story of the discovery of the triplet code doesn't start with biology at all, but with a crucial mathematical insight by physicist George Gamow in the mid-1950s. Around this time, it had become clear that DNA was made up of four different chemical letters or bases, adenine, cytosine, thymine and guanine, or A, C, T and G. 
And scientists also knew that there were 20 different amino acids that acted as the molecular building blocks of all known proteins. So, if a gene was a kind of DNA code that told cells which amino acids to assemble in which order to make a particular protein, then there should be some kind of relationship between the number of DNA letters required to encode each amino acid. Gamow did the maths. If it was two letters per amino acid, then there could only be 16 possible pairs of A, C, T and G. AA, AC, AT, AG, CC, CA, you get the picture. This fell short of the minimum 20 that were needed to encode all the different amino acid building blocks. But there were far too many possible combinations of four different letters, 256 in total, which seemed excessive. But there are only 64 different three-letter combinations. Not too few, but not too many. So three had to be the magic number, at least in theory. Yes, it is. It's a magic number. In 1961, Francis Crick, out of Watson and Crick, Leslie Barnett, Sidney Brenner and Richard Watts Tobin proved that three was indeed the rule, carrying out an elegant experiment where they removed or added one single letter of DNA at a time from a gene in a virus that infects bacteria. Taking away or adding in just one letter completely messed up the gene, as did adding or removing two. But removing or putting in three left the gene functional. The next thing was to figure out which three-letter DNA word encoded which amino acid. This was no simple task, given that molecular biology tools and techniques were still in their infancy. The first crucial step came from Spanish-American biochemist Severo Ochoa, who purified RNA polymerase in 1955. This is the enzyme that reads DNA and makes a molecular copy called messenger RNA, which is then used by the cell as the instructions for making proteins. This meant that researcher Marshall Nirenberg could create specific strings of RNA words to order in the lab. To keep things simple, he started with just one repeated letter, uracil or U, which is the RNA equivalent of the DNA letter T. He fed long strings just spelling U-U-U-U-U-U-U into test tubes containing mashed up bacterial cell extracts to see what proteins they made. It was phenylalanine, encoded by U-U-U. One down, 19 to go. Other researchers copied Nirenberg's idea, creating more complex artificial messenger RNAs and seeing what they made. At the University of Wisconsin, Indian-born biochemist Har Gobind Karana created a string reading UC, UC, UC and so on and popped that into the bacterial system. The result was an alternating string of serine and leucine. The experiments came thick and fast. Eventually, the three-letter words or codons spelling out all 20 amino acids were figured out, along with three words that mean stop reading here, UAG, UAA and UGA, and just one for the start, AUG, which encodes the amino acid methionine at the start of every single protein. There was also confirmation that each set of three RNA or DNA letters are non-overlapping, and that there can also be multiple triplets encoding for the same amino acid, 
For example, there are four different codons for leucine and two for phenylalanine. Karana and Nuremberg won the 1968 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for their interpretation of the genetic code and its function in protein synthesis, together with Robert Holly, who figured out an important part of the process by which amino acids are assembled together when the recipes encoded in RNA are translated into proteins. The award was particularly wonderful news for Karana, who'd grown up in the Punjab, now modern-day Pakistan, in what was virtually the only literate family in his small village, was taught to read and write by his dad, and went to school under a tree. The full dramatic story of how the genetic code was cracked is laid out in glorious detail in Matthew Cobb's book, Life's Greatest Secret, and it's well worth a read if you're curious to find out more. For me, the most incredible thing about the triplet code is its ubiquity. The same system of three-letter DNA words spells out the amino acids in your body, in a bacteria living in a deep-sea vent, in a glorious bird of paradise, and in a slimy slug. It's used by all living organisms on Earth, with only a few minor exceptions, such as a slight variation in the amino acid encoded by a particular triplet highlighting the shared evolutionary origin of all life on Earth. But the genetic code is now taking a further evolutionary leap, thanks to human ingenuity. Researchers are extending the code, developing synthetic DNA bases, such as X and Y, which encode amino acids that aren't normally found in nature, but can be incorporated into proteins with enough genetic trickery. And in 2017, researchers in South Korea even engineered a living mouse with a modified genetic code. No longer an enigma, the code of life has been well and truly cracked. Our story starts in the English county of Kent, in 1884, in the elegant middle-class home of the Punnett family. Nine-year-old Reginald Crundle Punnett is grappling with his first bout of appendicitis. He's fascinated by the leeches that have been placed on his belly, a common treatment at the time, carefully noting how long each one takes to become fat and gorged on his blood. Sent to rest in the quiet confines of his family's library for a few hours a day after lunch, young Punnett skips his naps in favour of reading, furthering his interest in the delights of nature by beavering his way through 40 volumes of The Naturalist's Library by William Jardine, which his father had picked up at a sale. This purchase wasn't due to any particular interest in science. Rather, Punnett Senior had only bought the books because he liked the decorative bindings. But it was enough to set Reginald firmly on the road to becoming a scientist. Punnett spent the rest of the summer collecting birds' eggs and butterflies, visiting Brighton Aquarium and eagerly devouring any nature books he could get his hands on, much to the bemusement of his bourgeois church-going family and friends, who had no interest in science at all. All his hard work paid off, and he won a scholarship to Cambridge University to study medicine, grappling with yet another bout of appendicitis along the way. Punnett quickly became fascinated with zoology, ditching medicine in favour of a career in research focusing on marine animals. By 1901, he'd been elected a fellow at Gonville and Keyes College in Cambridge, 
usually just known as Keys, and had also finally had enough of his dodgy appendix. He popped down to London to get it taken out for good, taking with him a specimen jar and preservative so he could dissect the offending organ at a later date. While recovering, he kept on reading and became intrigued by an exciting new idea from Austrian embryologist Leopold Schenk, suggesting that diet might have an influence on sex determination. Punnett was determined to investigate, and he wrote to pioneering geneticist William Bateson, who was busy carrying out breeding experiments with plants and animals, to see if he could collaborate. Bateson jumped at the chance, and so began Punnett's transformation from zoologist to geneticist. It turned out that mouse geneticist Florence Dunham was already looking into the sex question, but there were plenty of other problems for Punnett to get his teeth into. Together with Bateson, his collaborator Edith Rebecca Saunders and Robert Heath Locke, who was curator of the Cambridge University Herbarium, Punnett set about trying to devise a way of describing and explaining all the different possible offspring from breeding sweet peas with various characteristics, based on Mendel's laws of inheritance. Gregor Mendel himself first put forward the idea of using some kind of square diagram to figure out the likely outcomes from a cross in his classic 1866 pea paper, although obviously his ideas were lost until they were rediscovered by Bateson and others at the turn of the 20th century, as we heard in episode 14. Punnett took this forward, coming up with the idea behind what we now call a Punnett square, which was popularised by Bateson. At its most simple... A Punnett square is a simple square divided into four smaller boxes, describing the possible outcomes of crossing together two individuals with various combinations of dominant or recessive versions of a single gene, known as alleles. But this gets much more complicated when considering more possible parents and multiple traits. The challenge of visually representing the outcome of genetic crosses also attracted the attention of Charles Darwin's cousin Francis Galton, who in 1905 sent Bateson an elegant hand-coloured square capturing the 64 possible outcomes of crossing three different characteristics. The diagram was so clear that Bateson and Punnett adopted the design immediately, with Punnett putting a version in the 1907 reprint of his best-selling book, Mendelism, when it hadn't appeared in the first edition in 1905. This marked the first time that such a square was published, forever linking it to Punnett's name, although he never actually credited Galton with coming up with that format in the first place. The issue may have even attracted the attention of John Venn, who invented his eponymous diagram in 1880. Venn was also a fellow at Keyes, and he and Punnett doubtlessly interacted at college, perhaps over dinner and port, but while his overlapping circles are pleasing, they're not as useful in genetics as Punnett squares. As time has passed, things have become much more complicated. Although a Punnett square might still be taught in school as a way of working out the chances of inheriting traits or diseases caused by obvious single gene faults, most characteristics in humans, animals and plants can't be explained so easily. Modern genetics is more about statistics than squares, thanks to complex interactions between genes, their control switches and the influence of the environment, known as epigenetics. This was also a problem that Punnett grappled with later on in his career, playing an essential role in the development of one of the most important mathematical formulas in genetics, known as the Hardy-Weinberg equation, 
which explains the proportions of genetically different individuals in a population. Today, researchers use complex algorithms to figure out the interactions between thousands of regions of the genome and all kinds of traits and diseases, from diabetes and cancer to height, weight, or even voting tendency. Although Punnett didn't directly name his square, having things named after oneself seems to be a recurring trait. Punnett himself has two species of sea worms named after him, Cerberotilus punetti and Punettia splendia. And one of his 18th century farming relatives gave the family name to the small wooden boxes he designed to transport his soft fruits to the market in London, which we still refer to as punnets. A fun science fact to enjoy while you're tucking into a bowl of strawberries and cream this summer. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip or email me podcast at geneticsunzipped.com with any questions and feedback. Please, please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and it would be great if you could rate and review. And more importantly, spread the word so more people can discover this show too. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney, and produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, the logo was designed by James Mayle, and production was by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Thank you.